Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Take me to the king. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Kelly Richardson Lawson. I'm a mother, a wife, and an entrepreneur. I started the Sunrise Project after our beautiful teenage son attempted to take his own life. Truth is, I'm tired. My husband and I felt despair, isolation, and immeasurable pain. I knew in my heart we needed a place for Black parents to share their struggles, find mutual support, and help our beloved children who struggle with mental wellness, addiction, or both. Each weekly podcast features an expert who shares their knowledge and takes questions from parents and children. Take me to the king. I don't have much to bring. The Sunrise Project allows Black families, like ours, to find comfort in knowing that we are not alone. While the purpose of the Sunrise Project is to share, support, and uplift, this conversation is not a substitute for medical advice. Finding the right healthcare professional for your family's specific needs is crucial. If you do not feel seen or heard, you should speak to more than one professional to find the right fit. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our weekly Sunrise Project call. I'm happy you're here, and I hope that you find a moment of solace and peace this morning as we share and learn from one another in a safe space that's filled with love, compassion, and a mutual desire to heal our families and ourselves. I'm gonna open with our serenity prayer as always. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm now excited to introduce our guests for the day. Dr. Linda McGee has been with us a few, on a few occasions, and this morning we have a very special guest, her six foot six year uh, <laughs> uh, Darian. Um, and what they will be talking about today, well, let me give a background a little bit about Dr. Linda McGee for people who may be new. Dr. McGee is a clinical psychologist um, with uh, many years of experience in this area, specializing in teens and young adults and children's psychology. She also has a radio show and she has been a dear friend of mine for over 17 years. We met when um, my eldest was born. Um, and so I am delighted to have Dr. McGee or my friend Linda on the phone and her son Darian. And the topic for today is from black child to black man, the promise and the perils. So Linda and Darian will share this morning some of the factors and stressors that face men of color as they move from childhood to young adult. Um, and I'm going to now turn it over to my dear friend and an incredible expert, Dr. Linda McGee. Good morning, everyone. Um, I want to start off today by talking a little bit about how I'm going to be with you a little bit differently today than I normally am. I'm normally talking about a topic, and we will touch upon some topics. But today, I am with you in a more personal way um, as a mother and as someone who's been treating adolescents, children, and young adults for many years. So I'm going to start off today by giving you a little bit of background about myself and my family. I'm going to talk about some ground rules that sort of govern our discussion and look at stressors that our boys face and um, then an awareness that to work towards solutions to problems, we got to understand ourselves and our children. And then I want to conclude with some of the things that we know work, some of the lessons that I've learned. And then I'm going to have Darian be open for questions. 
Um, and, and myself open for questions. I should let you know that my husband, David, is on the line, and but he's not going to speak today, but he is on the line listening. Um, so a little bit of background. Kelly told you that I am a psychologist, and I am. Um, I have, my husband and I, David, have one child, Darian, and he was born after about 10 years of marriage. David and I have been married for 29 years, and we've been together for about 33 years. As, as by way of background also, I am a lawyer. I was a lawyer, and I turned into a psychologist. So when Darian was two, I started to study psychology, and in the kindergarten, I was leaving, uh, my, uh, I was graduating when he was in the kindergarten. Um, I've worked in child and adolescent psychology and education for the, uh, basically the whole time, and I have a specialization, one specialization in uh, educational assessment and consulting. So uh, one other thing I want you to know about my family is I come from a family of origin of 11 brothers and sisters and um, was started off my life in housing projects and moved into a home when I was 12 years old. Um, and my husband is one of three children. He's the youngest of three boys. And he was raised in Washington, D.C., and I was raised in uh, southern Indiana in a pre predominantly white county. So I'm going to have Darian give you a little bit of background about himself before we start our talk today. Uh, hello, I'm Darian McGee. I'm 20 years old, currently a junior in my second semester at the University of Maryland. I am a major in uh, business finance, uh, currently interested in getting a job in either sports business or consulting. Uh, I've attended multiple schools in the D.C. Maryland area, uh, Lafayette Elementary School, Landon School in Bethesda, Sewell Friends School, St. John's College High School, and now, of course, uh, Maryland. Okay. So um, my first thought is when we started the Sunrise Project and I did the first call, as I often think, I think about I'm joining you when you call me on the phone in my practice or, or in other ways that I confront parents, I'm joining the story late. And so usually I'm in like act three. When you bring me a child who's depressed or anxious, who's having problems in school, um, who's struggling with addictions, um, that's usually late in the story. So... What happens is, is when I work with parents, the point that I intervene in is that a parent brings me a child and they ask me to help them put the child right and to fix them. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. But as I often think, we're dealing with a child in a system. We're dealing with a child that moves through this world. So what, I'm, what we're dealing with is the intersection of a child, their own personality, what they've inherited, their strengths, and their challenges. And we're also putting them in interaction with the parents and their immediate family, the, fam the mother and father's personalities, their biologies their experience, their strengths and challenges. And, and a third factor is our child in our family in a society. And we're in a society with black boys in particular, which is the topic today, that is a society that has its racial undertones, overtones, um, and, and, and essentially a systemic racism. And so obviously that would be a topic that would take up two or three calls, but I wanted to bring the child into, con uh, into context with his own family and with the society at large. So there's some ground rules. Um, this is a compassionate discussion and, and it comes from an authentic place. And we don't claim parenting, but we explore what we all bring to the parenting table. And there's a realization that there is no black boy parenting guide out there waiting to be uh, read and followed. Um, in addition, boys, regardless of their color, are by nature often not talkative or demonstrative, 
And sometimes it's really hard to figure out what's going on when a person is not verbally telling you what's going on. Um, so you have to figure out how to read between the lines, and that's easier said than done. Also, I want to just acknowledge that we're bombarded with images of black people and black boys in particular in our media, our communications, our history, our education system, and that black people internalize those perceptions in the same way that white people or other races do. So, and we base our parenting toward those internalized stereotypical images. So a lot of times parents say to me, a middle class, a typical middle class family will come to me and the parents will ask me, well, I don't understand why Johnny is, is depressed or anxious. I don't understand why he's struggling. Thinking that their child has had it so much better and so much easier than them. So I want to talk a little bit today about what's changed in the system that they're growing up in versus the one that we grew up in and what hasn't changed. So one thing that has changed is academic rigor. For example, um, I remember reading Animal Farm in the 10th or 11th grade in high school, public high school in Southern Indiana. I happened to work at the Landon School where Darian went for five years, and they read it in the seventh grade. So the academics are, the rigor has changed. The academics are front-loaded. So that means that subjects that we used to take in high school, they're taking in middle school. Like we, like these children take algebra before they get to high school. I took algebra my first two years of high school. Um, we didn't, I didn't terminate in a calculus. Um, these kids terminate in calculus. So the academics are front loaded. The societal pressures and problems um, and peer pressures have increased. For example, when I worked as a middle school counselor, drug and alcohol use was pushed down into the middle school, whereas growing up, that would have been a very, very rare occasion that a child used drugs, alcohol, smoked tobacco, smoked weed, did anything like that as a middle schooler. Um, time pressures. Our children are scheduled in a way that we weren't. They have very, um, they don't have as much free or downtime. Outside activities, there's an increase in those in terms of the child having to be um, involved in a lot of different activities. So they usually go from school to something as opposed to going on, uh, going home. Parents are working, right? And uh, the uh, women and women are more at work than they were in our generation. Also, a discussion would not be complete if we didn't talk about social media and the influences that that has brought to both child rearing and the pressures that they face. Um, and finally, what has changed is that there is a need to excel in many different areas. You, you have to sort of be good at your academics. You have to like have some kind of an um, other sort of uh, thing that you hinge yourself on, like athletics or an activity or philanthropy, all of these things, you know, I don't know if any of y'all remember, but most of us just went in, we talked to our college counselor, filed one or two applications for college, and we were in college. There was no need to, we only took the SAT once. So uh, then there is a need for uh, our children to be better, good at more than one thing. So what hasn't changed? Well, child development hasn't changed. Like ch children go through stages of growth and maturation that remain relatively constant. Brain development has remained relatively con uh, constant. Even though schoolwork and things are, are being front-loaded, it doesn't mean that children have a better capacity to deal with them than they had 20 years ago. In fact, in some of our school systems, we're learning that kids don't have the capacity to do things that are being pushed upon them. Like in Montgomery County, Maryland, they were forcing algebra very young into the process, and they were finding that kids weren't passing the exams because they found out that many kids just weren't ready, their brains weren't ready 
to learn algebra. Human emotions remain the same from throughout centuries. Uh, the complexity of social and emotional development has remained the same. And for those of you who have boys, you will particularly laugh at this, even though I won't be able to hear you because I'm mute. Um, the executive functioning capabilities have remained basically the same, meaning that boys' development in terms of being able to organize themselves, them their time, check over their work, it has remained the same over time. Um, and finally, the number of slots in the top 20 colleges has remained relatively constant over the last 20 years. So you have an increasing amount of people trying to get into the top 20 schools, and but they basically have the same number of slots. Um, one thing I want to add is that racism has changed and it hasn't changed, right? We're still, we're in a system where a lot of de jure, meaning uh, state-sponsored uh, racism and discrimination has gone away. We're, we're, in, a, we're in an age where uh, college admissions by black kids have gone up. The graduation rate is ticking up. Um, but we're still, it, we still have many remnants of discrimination and racism that kids face, and it's a factor in our rearing of our children. We talked on another call about depression and anxiety and, and the advent of depression and anxiety in our youth, but what really brought a lot of black people nationally to talk about mental health in children was this Journal of Pediatrics study, which um, talked about how they found increased rates of reported suicide attempts among black teenage girls and black teenage boys and there was an increased rate of injury associated with suicide attempts among black boys. And, and I'm going to bring that from a non, down to a non-clinical term. Why that was, was that black boys often, unfortunately, use methods designed to work. So they often, uh, unfortunately and sadly, use gunshots, use guns, and they hang themselves, which are methods more designed to work. What was particularly alarming was that the rise, the meteoric rise of the suicide rate, if you all can believe this, from children between 5 and 17. So uh, the suicide rate between for those children are roughly twice the rate for black kids as they are for white kids. Um, it levels out between 13 and 17, the pattern flips, and then white children have a higher rate of suicide. So there is, so when we talk about entering the play late, what my point is is that there's a progression. Our children are dealing with these stressors. The stressors then could become anxiety or depression if they're not addressed. If there's too much stress and they're, they're not addressed, they can become depression or anxiety or other illnesses, uh, mental illnesses, and if left untreated, could lead to the rise of suicidality. So I'm going to then turn my discussion to what a black boy faces in particular, okay? So there is this historical construct of black boys as deficient, um, as deviant, and it's dangerous, and it's been shown time and time again. And um, many of us wonder, who have boys, we, we wonder why that kid that we love and we grow, we grow with such care has transformed from this cute and lovable creature in elementary school to this kid who's seen as problematic as they go from middle school to high school. Um, black boys are seen as older and less innocent than white boys. There is, as I said before, a tidal wave of media that informs us all about who black and brown boys are and who they can become. And on top of that is a patriarchal society that socializes all boys in terms of like a boy code. So when a child uh, enters this world and they start to realize what race is and start to work their way through race, 
they they encounter various things. They encounter overt racism and covert acts like hate crimes and assaults and and microaggressions on a daily basis. As as we all as adults know, they also encounter this uh, thing called stereotype threat, which is that we act in a way that sort of reinforces the stereotype. So, for example, if we think that we're not going to do well, then a lot of times unconsciously or subconsciously our actions sort of lead us to fulfill the stereotype. So let me give you an example. If a child is intimidated on a college campus by his Econ 101 class, he might not want people to know that he's intimidated. He might not want to go to his professor's office hours because he doesn't want his professor to think that he can't do it or that he's inferior. And our kids are more less likely to join study groups and go to uh, student services to get support. Also what students encounter is they need a sense of belonging they need social supports and mentoring that are different and, and than those of uh, the majority culture. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We often have what's called the imposter syndrome or the imposter phenomenon where we fear that we're not going to measure up. In addition, those of us, uh, might, we might have a little bit of survivor guilt. If we have left our neighborhoods and if we have become the only person or one of few people that have made it and from our families or from our community, there's a little bit of survivor guilt and there's a pull toward not wanting to leave the security of home and home base. At colleges and in high schools and in uh, majority culture, private schools, kids often feel a sense of isolation. By the actions of personnel, we, they, we could also feel marginalized, meaning that our worth is discounted. And there are some acculturation issues, meaning that in order to blend in and um, acclimate to a certain environment, um, a kid has to make, a boy has to make, a child has to make certain compromises and to adjust themselves to the environment. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what kinds of things help, right? So the number one thing that I want to emphasize today is that parenting is a, is a journey in self-exploration. Um, you want, you want to understand yourself, uh, even though that sounds paradoxical, I have a child who's depressed. What do I need to know about myself? But learning about yourself and your own parenting strengths and challenges is, is very beneficial in, in, in order to support your child. The second thing is knowing your child. Kelly and I talk about this. I talk about this with all the clients. You have this idea in your head when you give birth to a child that he, um, and we're talking about boys today, that he's going to be tall, he's going to be athletic, he's going to be uh, a Rhodes Scholar, he's going to be socially fluent, people are going to love him, he's going to work on Wall Street and make a million dollars. We have all these images in our head. And not that all of them are bad, but they often just don't coincide with the child in front of you. So uh, uh, we need to just focus on paying attention to the child in front of you. It's like the difference between Italy and Holland. Like you, Italy is a great place, but Holland is also great. And to realize that there are so many benefits and strengths that your child might have that because you're so focused on that idea in your head, you might miss the fact that you're growing a little Rembrandt or you're growing a great writer or you have a child that thinks for themselves and has a real potential for leadership if it's developed. So just knowing and accepting your child and then, again, back to yourself, understanding the forces that drive you and your child. 
Um, there is a study uh, put out uh, called the ACEs study. And the ACEs study looks at these things called adverse childhood experiences. And when you look at those adverse childhood experiences, they have a real impact. So like, let's say, for example, that your mother or one of your parents was addicted to alcohol or went to jail or one of these things, or you, were, you operated under severe poverty, there was abuse, there was trauma, parents need to understand that that um, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs will impact not only their own mental health and their own outcomes, but it also impacts things like diabetes, it impacts autoimmune diseases. So the, the whole point of the ACEs study was to understand that when we undergo these events in childhood, that they impact our mental, physical, educational, all of these things as we emerge as adults, and those things impact the way we parent. So if, we're, uh, if, if no one in our family um, graduated from college, um, then we're parenting based on that fear and that I've, I'm a first gen. So meaning that I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. I wasn't the last person, but I was the first person. And so that, in, that kind of defensive fear went into my parenting. So understanding that your ACEs and your childhood experiences impact your parenting and trauma in and of itself. If you've undergone some sort of trauma, then that trauma impacts the way you parent. Also, again, systemic racism impacts the way you parent because there's so many pressures. We're trying to protect our boys from being a statistic, from being a part of the system, that we are parenting in a way to guard against that. So we're trying to push them into careers that may economically protect them. We're trying to um, be defensive in the way we talk to them about going out at night. Many of us, if we see our kid walk out the door, we're fearful. So we are, it's only logical and rational to think that we're parenting based on those things. Also, what helps is when you get help for yourself and your child at early stages. What protects boys in particular is um, the studies say is that resilience, like if you can build resilience in your child, the ability to withstand the day-to-day forces of life, um, if your environment is stable and you're supportive of your child, those things help. In environments, what helps is people that look like them. So when you're placing them in educational environments, uh, having them be among peers that look like them, and having teachers that and, and administrators that look like them and people that you can reach out to. Parents also uh, can trust their instincts to know that sometimes in their guts they know something is wrong and they know that something needs to be explored and they wait. So trusting your instincts and at least placing a call, talking to another parent, talking to a psychologist, talking to your school counselor, um, and then that brings me to the point of listening to prevail, prevailing observations. A lot of times people come to me and they say, well, the third grade teacher and the fourth grade teacher told me that he seemed anxious, but they're bringing me a 17-year-old. So if there is a prevailing observation, please listen to it. Timely intervention. Dealing with a fourth grader with a little bit of anxiety is really different from dealing with a kid who's going to college in five months. Um, So get intervention early um, and understanding that one size does not fit all. So each children has to be treated as their own separate entity. It doesn't really serve you to compare them, and it also is hurtful and undermines the child development. And the last thing I want to talk about is this thing I call the conspiracy of silence before I go into lessons learned. The conspiracy of silence is that as black people, we are so, like I said, we're we're often protective. We're often trying to keep things contained in the home and not talk about them. 
but we also are silent about problems. So you're in, we're siloed in that we think that our child is the only person that's suffering from these things. And that's often not the case. So I want to leave you guys with uh, just a couple of thoughts about the lessons that I've learned, both from being an advisor to other children and as being a parent. Being a psychologist, uh, uh, funnily or not, is not a protective factor. Uh, You have your own issues with your children that don't have anything to do with you being a child psychologist. And so I'm not immune from the slings and arrows of, of bad parenting. Parenting is an evolution, and I've grown probably more than Darian through this process. And I had to realize that I was raising a whole child not an academician, and I not just an academician. I needed to, I wanted to raise a child who was well-adjusted and ready to go out there into the world, not just whose books were straight. The fourth lesson that I learned is that Black people have this thought that we are invincible, but we are not invincible. We have the same human frailties as anyone else. We are strong people, no doubt about it. We've survived a lot, no doubt about it, but we're not invincible. Also, in our, in our phraseology, we, a lot of us were parented by the beatdown method. And, you know, so I, I joke a lot to say that one of my books is going to be the beatdown ain't working. As a, as a sole source of parenting, the uh, uh, parenting um, method is not going to work on its own. We got to learn other methods of parenting. Also, not to be taken in by people, public proclamations, their Facebook pages, um, it's, it's not all true, and you can't even compare your child to other kids. Just focus on your own child. I think involvement is key with boys, and you have to just have a lot of time on task. You have to be available for when they want to talk, and oftentimes that's not, that's not frequent. But when they are, you need to be there. The phone needs to be off, and you need to listen. That was one that I had to learn myself. You have to figure out what makes your child thrive, not just survive, but thrive. Not what makes me thrive, but what makes him thrive. I also think that guilt is a waste of energy and that forgiving yourself for any perceived mistakes that you might have made is all a part of the journey. Parents need to take care of themselves, and um, oftentimes what I see is an embattled parent. They'll come to me, and they'll be in complete defense of their child. And I'll just say to them, sometimes defending your child at all costs may not be what's best. It may be that at that time it may be good to go and see what is actually going on and not just defending them out of instinct. How we were raised is instructive and sometimes can be valuable, but it's not always right or appropriate for the child that's in front of you. Also a reminder that we live in a sort of a bubble in this DMV area where um, the college education rate and for black people is high. But just a reminder that this is, this is not the case for the country at a whole. The college graduate among black people in this country is still at 20%, so or just under 20%, so like 8 in 10 of black Americans don't have a college degree. Uh, finally, I want to uh, encourage parents to when things are not working, at a school or in an environment to consider pulling the plug earlier as opposed to waiting till the damage gets greater with your child and understanding when you should intervene and when you should lay back and let your child have a lesson is difficult, but you should have discussions and internal dialogue about when when to intervene. Sometimes when the system is hard against your child, or when you feel like that there's racism or some really big unfairness, you need to intervene, and you need to intervene hard. And finally, um, Darian played sports throughout his career. I want to just have a couple of words about that, and you're free to ask him about that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to ask him about that. Sports are a hard road, and they come at a cost. And finally, prayers work, but earthly help is sometimes necessary. Getting support is not a sign of weakness, and things are not going to be fixed by ignoring them. So with those comments, I am going to lead off by asking Darian 
to um and Kelly unless you have anything do you want to lead off with a question for Darian no please go right ahead Linda I was going to ask Darian about a couple of things one is the uh, racism that he may have encountered um, as a young black boy um, that other kids don't necessarily face and also for him to like um just expound a little bit about like a day in the life of being like he was a walk-on for one year at college in sports to have him elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. So um, an example of some racism or um, racial biases that I faced when I was younger, some of like the generic things, like I've been followed around like certain convenience stores by, uh, by owners. Uh, I've been stopped by the police when there hasn't been seemingly a good reason, but I feel like, especially for me that I feel like my parents prepared me on how to handle those situations well. And I guess to not react in a way that could promote, provoke more conflict in that situation and try to get out of this situation and just be calm and act rationally so that you can survive as a black man in this world. Cause it's going to be hard in certain situations to keep your cool, but you just got to, calm yourself down and try to make the right decision. So, but it is hard, but I think it's important to talk to your, uh, talk to your kids about that so that they're prepared for the world. And um, the experience of being a walk-on is a lot of work. It is a full schedule. My schedule when I played football was waking up at 5 a.m., practicing from 5 a.m. to noon. Then I would go to classes from about 1 to five, uh, we would have film from six to eight at the stadium. Then we have tutors from eight to ten if you needed the tutors. And then, um, then after that, you'd have time to like do your homework or whatever uh, you needed to do. But yeah, it was a full day, and pretty much everything was scheduled. You really didn't have that much time for free time. Very structured. The workouts were insane. Uh, we had this thing on Thursday called Dawn Patrol. Wake up. 4 a.m., go to the stadium, and you work out for two hours. The workouts were so hard that people would throw up three to four times during the workout, running around the stadium steps, doing a bunch of crazy workouts. Uh, we would weigh ourselves before we did the workout on Don Patrol, and I would lose almost 10 pounds after just a two-hour workout. It'd be crazy. It's, it's very crazy. Um, but, yeah, it's sports is a – Sports is a hard thing to do in college. There are obviously advantages and rewards to playing sports, but it's it's, it's very hard, especially to balance that with a very tough major like business or engineering or something like that. Um, do you people comment? Um, do people commenting on your size all the time bother you? <laughs> <laughs> I would say, I would say not really. It doesn't bother me because I'm sort of used to it now. I find it kind of funny like the amount of people that just like assume that I play sports because of my size. I feel bad for people who are like six five, six six that that don't play sports because it must get annoying to get asked, Hey, uh, do you play football, big man? Do you play basketball? Big man? Like <laughs> I feel bad for them but uh I think it's just become like a part of like who I am as a person. But at the same time I don't think it's right that you should assume just because you're like six five, six six black man that you have to be involved with sports, but that, that's part of, like, society's perception of tall black men. So that's just going to come with that. So, Kelly, we could open it up for questions now. Yep, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing, both of you. Really appreciate it. I think one of the things you said um, that really struck a chord for me, and you've said this to me before, is really, you know, the transition from loving the child that you thought you had versus the child that you have standing before you really learning to love that person is really hard. And it also takes time, it takes patience, it takes you know, radical listening and radical acceptance, which is really hard for most of us. I think probably all of us. And so that struck a chord with me, so thank you. Um, if anyone wants to ask a question. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you all for being here. <clears throat> One of the things that you spoke of um, brought something to mind because you mentioned that you have one son and one is in my opinion one of the other factors that 
plays into this whole development of, of that particular child is their place in the family. I have three children and I have a set of twins. So one of my sons who uh, faces some mental health challenges as well, he is actually the second son and the male of a twin uh, boy and girl. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things, you know, people tend to say that I overthink things that I began to look at from a very young age was his placement in this family mm-hmm. based on just some of his behaviors and things like that. I, you know, even he started stuttering at a very, very young age and I took him to a speech therapist and they felt that it would go probably go away. But what it came from was that he had an older brother who's only 15 months older, older, an older brother, and he had a twin sister, and both of their language had developed, and he was just trying to keep up. And, you know, it did go away. But that, you know, to me, um, in terms of the placement of the child, when it comes to siblings and things like that, have a very strong influence in their development of who they are And right now, you know, I'm just trying to encourage him. His older sibling has started his first year in college, and he kind of shadows him and has always shadowed him in everything that he's truly his big brother. But I've tried to keep pointing out to him that the road that your older sibling has taken may not be the road for you. And if it isn't, it's okay. We just have to find the right path. That's it, you know. Yeah. Um, You know, your point is very, very well taken. Um, I come from a big family, but I only have one child. And and in a family of 12, um, interestingly enough, we've only produced 19 grandchildren. And And my son is the number 19. Because um, I had my child out out of order from my siblings, so I had my child last. Your children's siblings are their first points of comparison. That and it's something deep about the relationship between the siblings, and whether it's spoken or unspoken, you're gonna always, in some way, compare yourself to that sibling. Mm-hmm. You're gonna look at what they're doing, and you're going to compare yourself. What I try to say to parents is that that's already going on. Whether you open your mouth or not, it's already going on out there, right. okay? They're already comparing themselves with it. The, the only thing that we can do is kind of like exacerbate it by saying, like, your sibling's this and you're not there yet, or why can't you be like so-and-so? That, that is, um, in many instances, particularly unhelpful, but to understand that he will always at some level compare himself, but prayerfully and hopefully, and it sounds like you have given us a lot of thought, will get to the point where he can find his own way and right. to understand and accept where he is. Um, but a lot of times that comes not as soon as parents want, right? We <laughs> think about like what we know, the brain science is now telling us that a boy's decision-making part of the brain doesn't fully develop until between 25 and 28, (laughs) except we send 17-year-olds off to college. I send a 17-year-old off to college and, or someone who had just turned 18 and who's 20 now in a, in a a month will be a a senior in college. Um, Mm -hmm. So our expectations are that, okay, just accept yourself. But if you think about the way you developed and how long it took you to get to the point to accept yourself, then his struggles might be put into a better context. But these are, you know, when you, and also the one last thing about having more than one child is that resources, focus, and time are different, admittedly. You know, it, you know if, if I had had uh, more than one child or if, if many of you that only have one child would say, your kid wouldn't go to the schools that my son listed 
or, you know, he wouldn't have had some of the resources that we had because we just had one child. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Any other questions or thoughts for Linda? I'm calling uh, with a question about my 23-year-old son who has struggled with both anxiety and depression, and he's been out of school for two years now. He was in an engineering program and didn't flunk out, but didn't keep his GPA high enough to keep his scholarship. But Mm -hmm. my concern is he like many people that struggle with mental illness, has bouts where he doesn't believe anything's wrong. He stops complying with taking his medicine. Then he kind of spirals down. Then he takes it again or or realize has a panic attack or something, and then he'll start therapy again. And Uh he's very particular about who he'll talk to for therapy, and he feels as if he outgrows them within a month or two. Um, <laughs> and he is intellectually very bright, and so he has uh-huh. a lot of expectations about uh-huh. his therapist. Uh-huh. But what I'm really wanting to know is how can I jumpstart him starting again with a new therapist because he's a strong introvert. And one therapist once had me come and talk you know, for one session to kind of give him all the background and history because I think he hides parts of his history Mm -hmm. or doesn't recall it or doesn't believe Mm -hmm. it. And now I'm trying to set up telehealth with someone he'll find acceptable and yet give them this information. So I could just use tips on getting a new person up to school. So um, one of the things that happens when there's a really bright person who is also fighting help is that they also like intellectualize or they make it, they get in their head about their therapist. And so there's only like a certain level of therapist. Like I sometimes get calls from people to say they will only deal with psychologists. They won't deal with social workers. They have some kind of uh, bizarre hierarchy in their heads about who's better and who's more educated and a lot of times I'll have a kid who's also fighting therapy who's, who's been the one who's researched my degrees and qualifications and is in there questioning me about my techniques and stuff. I think a lot of that is a defense against help. And so when you say he says he outgrows a therapist, that's probably not true in most of the instances. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I won't say that 100% all therapists are not created equal. But I will say that some of that might be his defense against wanting or accepting help. So I think that your best option is to try to find somebody that can legally treat him. The rules have been relaxed via COVID-19. So, you know, uh, cross state lines is now being permitted more. But what it sounds like to me is that he feels like these enormous attacks on when a kid doesn't finish college, there's a lot of attacks on his self-esteem that they will not talk to you about. And so when you combine that with mental illness, that makes it like a double problem. And I think a lot of black boys and young black men, they have real big attacks on self-esteem when they aren't able to matriculate and they look and see like a lot of kids around them, progressing in their fields and starting to get promotions. So what we want to try to do is is define a therapist who understands that and who understands our boys and our young men and try to, like, build a relationship with them first and then to set some concrete goals based on what he wants to do. Forget about what you want to do, what the therapist wants, but it's like, okay, so you don't, Life therapy is a long-range solution. What are your goals? Give me your three-month goals. And to start to try to work with him, to try to dig in. Like a therapist, we just need one therapist to be able to dig in with him. But I will suggest that you look at everything, including medication, everything, to sort of reexamine what we can jumpstart. You didn't say whether he's working or not now, but like ways to build him up. And this is, again, this is not a pat answer, and these are difficult questions that y'all are posing today, 
um, but they're realistic. But what I would like to try to say to you is to try to find, a, you know, a real therapist, a good therapist, what I call a varsity-level therapist, to, like, see if they can get their, uh, you know, their grip on him, to get him to come to the next session and get to commit and to sort of get some patterns going. And sometimes the patterns won't be long, but just to get some kind of consistency, because it sounds like everything now is inconsistent. Therapist, med compliance, you know, everything is inconsistent. And what you want to try to do is get some wins, and you get those wins by building consistency. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, we are out of time this morning. Unless anybody has one final comment, I will close the meeting with a prayer. Any final comments from anybody? Okay. Well, um, Linda and Darian, thank you so much for your time today. Truly appreciate it. You gave us wonderful tips. So thank you for sharing and for being so open um, and being so helpful. I will now close with a closing prayer for today. Father, you love us in a perfect way, even in the middle of our mess and in the middle of our children's messes. You love them perfectly too. Thank you for loving our kids beyond our capacity. When we can't see what's happening in our children's lives, we can rejoice because you hold them in your hands. Forgive us for falling into cycles of blame, remorse, regret, control, sadness, and anger. Forgive us for putting too much pressure on our children and on ourselves as parents. Father, we pray specifically for our child's physical health, mental health, safety, shelter, and dependence on you. Bless us with the release grip on control. Send your spirit to strengthen us to surrender worry and control. You are bigger. You are in control. You are love. I'm Kelly Richardson Lawson, and you've been listening to the Sunrise Project podcast. You can follow Sunrise wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, Open your podcast app and follow this show. Join us next week for another gathering of support. Thank you for listening. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental wellness challenges, contact your doctor, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or both. You can reach NAMI's helpline at 800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time or email at info at nami.org. Volunteers are working to answer questions, offer support, and provide practical next steps. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta, because we know on one flight, Mike N8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.